When it comes to the book of Revelation, I have found, and you might be able to sympathize with this to an extent, that modern people struggle to a degree with a literal reading of the supernatural. Because such an interpretation, as you may have even found at this point in our travels, seems a little outlandish. So much of the commentary that you'll find on this book ends up being spent trying to explain in in all kinds of ways the extraordinary things that the Apostle John sees in some type of ordinary, rational way. Like, for example, instead of the unbelievable ecological destruction of the planet occurring in the first few trumpet judgments, being the result of cataclysmic events initiated by God Himself, the descriptions we have of the stars falling from heaven or or a fiery mountain being thrown into the sea end up being seen and interpreted and twisted into being modern methods of warfare. Things like scud missiles or nuclear weapons. Things that a first century John would have a hard time describing, understandably. And while I get the compulsion, even the intellectual need, to attempt to explain what seems crazy, i.e. demon locusts tormenting men for five months, or an alien invasion of 200 million fallen angels eventually killing a third of mankind. My biggest objection to this particular approach to the book of Revelation is that it ends up fostering man-made causations for what I believe should simply be seen as the divine. Like, understand, never forget, really, that during this great tribulation, the inhabitants of earth, the people here, will be cognitively aware that they were experiencing something extraordinary, abnormal, different. In fact, the evidence seems to suggest that believer or unbeliever alike will be cognitively aware during these seven years that they were actively experiencing the divine wrath of Almighty God. But case in point, just look at the way that chapter 9 closes. We kind of left off the end of chapter 9 last Sunday. The chapter closes with John saying that as for the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders and sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And and you know, within the context, a refusal to repent implies an active resistance to one's need for repentance. People are aware of what's going on. They're aware of what they're experiencing. And they're making the decision to resist it anyway. In many ways, the book of Revelation is best understood, I believe, as a clash, a great clash, between the seen and unseen worlds. While there has always existed a tension between the two, during this time period, these seven years, great tribulation, the separation between the physical world and the spiritual is no longer necessary. Like what is evil and what is holy converge. Darkness is on an irreversible crash course with the light. You see, I believe that during these years, the supernatural, what is presently all around us, but during this season, it becomes so overt, so obvious, so blatant, that it ends up being normalized. Like rational explanations For the radical things that John records in this book will not be warranted during these seven years. Like what we read and interpret as literal will be actual. Like angels are sent to earth. They fly through the skies of heaven and they provide divine proclamations for the whole world to hear. Aside from angels, demons are loosed on earth to torment humanity for five months. Aside from that, 144,000 Jewish Hebrew witnesses bear a physical seal, the name of God, on their foreheads. 
and they can't be killed. That's normal. Aside from that, we'll see today that there'll be two more witnesses in Jerusalem with the ability to actually perform signs and wonders. For those that would try to attack them, fire comes out of their mouth and devours them. They can stop the rain from falling. They can enact plagues similar to what we find in Egypt. I mean, this is all normal. It's all happening. It's all over the news. Not to be outdone, by the way, the Antichrist and the false prophet, which we'll get to next Sunday and the week after, they can do the same. Same type of supernatural works. My point is that during the Great Tribulation, the supernatural, which includes interactions with angels and demons, will be commonplace. It'll be the norm. And because this is the case, as you process what you're reading in this book, always keep in mind that trying to make sense of things that are going to happen in an environment totally foreign to ours, it's not warranted or even needed. You know, with His church in heaven, for seven years, Jesus incrementally removes the veil between this unbelieving, rebellious world and hell, allowing mankind to taste a bit of his eternal destiny. He'll be tormented, but can't die. Then once this judgment is completed and the fate of mankind is sealed, this tribulational period will swiftly end and then the veil between earth and heaven will be removed when Jesus comes in glory. As we'll see in the coming weeks, By the end of these seven years, no living person, no person alive on earth will be left uncertain of the truth or uncommitted. As the undercurrent for all of these judgments, God's desire is to illustrate for humanity what our eternal decisions really are. In the end, every human who's ever lived or ever will live has one of two choices. You either follow Jesus or you join in Satan's rebellion. And in the end, based upon that sole decision, your destiny for all of eternity will either be heaven with Jesus or hell, separation from him. The book of Revelation makes it clear that there are are no third options. It's not A, B, or C. There are only two. And and during this time period, that paradox will be driven home. Well, Revelation 10, starting with verse 1. John says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars and when he cried out seven thunders uttered their voices now when the seven thunders uttered their voices I was about to write but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. In the original language, this phrase, another mighty angel, and that's what John sees here, it indicates that this angel is of the same kind as the ones we've been introduced to before. An angel, another of the same kind. Now, on account of the description that John provides of this angel, There are people who have tried to build the case or make the argument that this angel is actually Jesus. I completely disagree. While it is true that in the Old Testament and the pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus, you'll find the reference of him being the angel of the Lord. Most of the time it's, it's in the capital tense, the angel, the messenger of the Lord. That phraseology for Jesus being the angel of the Lord, is never, ever, ever used, not once, in the entire New Testament. Following the the incarnation, Jesus is never referred to as being an angel, and you don't find a reference in the book of Revelation either. 
Aside from this, in verse 6, we will see that this angel, he will swear by him who lives forever and ever. And again, if this is Jesus, we have a problem. Because according to Hebrews 6, verse 13, we read that when God made a promise to Abraham, he could swear by no one greater, so he swore by himself. Again, the, the very fact that this angel swears by God indicates that he's not God, that God is greater than he, meaning the angel can't be logically or even theologically Jesus. So not Jesus. Who's the angel? Well, we don't know. John doesn't tell us. So we'll leave him unnamed. He's an unnamed angel. A another angel, a mighty angel, of the same kind of angels we've seen before. We're told that he came from the presence of God. That's what our text says, right? That he's, John sees him coming down from heaven. And we know he's powerfully majestic. I mean, it's quite a scene, isn't it? He's clothed with a cloud. Again, kind of speaking of the Shekinah glory of God. There's a rainbow on his head. Literally, it says a, but in the Greek it's the. It's, it's the definite article. It's the rainbow. And there was, uh, this angel had a face like the sun and feet like pillars of fire. I mean, the, the angel comes from the presence of God and it's quite a majestic being. Not just that, but we know that he's been given an authority. Like he possesses this little book. It's open in his hand, we're told by the text. And he possesses kind of the dominion to carry forth whatever God, God's will is for the angel on earth. It's implied in this, this statement that he had one foot on the sea and another foot on the land. He's got dominion on earth to carry out God's will, God's plan. Now, as John watches here, he notes how this angel cried with a loud voice. We don't know what the angel cried. John describes kind of the tone, the tenor, the intensity as his cry being like when a lion roars. Again, you can, you can kind of play with the mental picture on your own. We don't have a record, again, of what the angel roared. But John does say, and this is interesting, that in response to this angel's declaration or his cries, that seven thunders uttered their voices. Now because the voices of these seven thunders was understandable, like John hears them and, and it's, it's knowable. He knows what's being said. We can assume this is not an electrical storm. <laughs> Like the reference of a thunder doesn't mean it's, it's a natural occurrence, a thunderstorm. As to what these seven thunders actually are, I have not the slightest clue. I'm not perfect. Now to make, if you find out, if you're like, oh, I know. You don't. But I would love to hear your theory. I have no idea what the seven thunders are, and I'm confident in my skin that when I don't know something, I'm not going to make it up. I'm just going to say, hey, I got no clue. And beyond that, no one else really does. So we just part of the, the, part of the crowd. Now, what's strange, I mean, seven thunders utter their voice. <laughs> what, what? Okay, that's cool. What makes it bizarre is that John says that when the seven thunders uttered their voices, he's like, oh, yeah, that's some good stuff. He pulls out his pen and his quill. He's ready to write down what he's hearing. But then he hears a voice from heaven. Instructing him to seal up the things which the, which the seven thunders uttered. Don't write them down. So John's like, okay, I will leave it out. Which is strange, again, because this is a book in which John has been what? He's been specifically told at the beginning to write down the things that he sees, and the things that he hears. But now, there's an instance where he, he sees something and he hears something, but it has to be struck from the record. Really, the only thing that we can derive from this interesting detail, aside from the fact that we're not told everything that happens, is that it does positively identify the voice that John hears from heaven as being Jesus. Now you might say, well, how do we know that, Zach? Well, think about it. Like it was Jesus back in chapter 1 that had given John his initial marching orders. It was Jesus who had told John to write the things that he heard and saw, meaning that it's only Jesus 
who possesses the authority to tell John to now avoid doing what he had told him to do. Again, if it had been an angel, and John's like, yeah, Jesus told me to write it down. I don't care what you say. But the fact that John hears the voice and is like, okay, you can make an amendment to the instruction. So we, we know that this is Jesus, which will play itself out later on in our story. Again, telling John to avoid writing this down, which would have been weird. And again, this is just how my brain thinks. You know, John, John writes down this revelation, and it gets circulated amongst the churches. John's still alive while this is going on. Can you imagine, you know, if you're reading through the book of Revelation, hanging out with your buddy John, and you get to this passage, and you're like, come on, man. You were told not to write it down, but there were no instructions about you just saying what it was, and I'll write it down. You know, and, and like for all of eternity, John's the one guy that's like, nope, that's just kind of left for me. And you can figure it out later when you're there. When you hear the seven thunders utter their voices. In the next chapter, the same voice, again reaffirming the idea that it's Jesus, the same voice will, will tell John concerning these two witnesses. He'll use the phrase, I, I will give power to my two witnesses. Which again, just substantiates the fact that this voice from heaven is that of Jesus. Verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land. So, so we shift back from the voice to the angel. He raised up his hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, the sea, the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. It would appear that this, this angel's core mission was to kind of set the stage for the end. Like, in effect, this mighty angel is announcing kind of for everyone to hear that with the sounding of this seventh and final trumpet, the mystery of God would be finished. It's as though the angel is making this proclamation. Everything at this point has been set into motion. There is no stopping it. In fact, he says, there should be delay no longer. The end is nigh, and the finality of God's plan, this angel's making it known, is nearing completion. Now in the Bible, when you run across this word, the mystery of God, uh, the, the, the meaning of the word mystery is, is a bit different from the way that we kind of interpret that word within our own culture. Like in a biblical context, a mystery was not something that no one could know. And that's what we kind of, uh, that's how we use the word in English within our society. If you say, well, that's just a mystery. What you're saying is like, no one can know. No one really knows. It's a mystery. Again, the seven thunders, what are they? No one knows. It's a mystery. In a biblical context, that's not how the word is used. It, it doesn't mean that, it's, that, that no one could know it. What a mystery was, was something that no one could possibly know unless God had revealed it to them. Like in a way, a mystery was something only knowable. You could know it, but it was only knowable through revelation, the revelation of God. Like you couldn't know it by becoming more educated, learning more things. You couldn't know it through intuition, sense. You couldn't know it through investigation. It was unknowable, a mystery, unless God revealed it. No way you could know it apart from the interaction and revelation of God. Now, while the world may not have known God's plan, this angel makes it clear that the mystery, so God's plan, one that's knowable, it was knowable because it had been revealed. It had been declared to God's servants, the prophets. Like, think of it as the angel telling the world, one, there is a final aspect of God's plan for the earth, and it's about to begin. It's about to be set in motion. Buckle up. And two, there is no mystery to it. You should know what it is. It's plain. It's been revealed. It's been declared Go to your Bible, open up the book, and you'll see what the plan is. 
It's bad, it's gnarly, it's destructive, it's cataclysmic, but bro, it's there, you can read it, there's no mystery to it, because it's been revealed. And the whole idea here, and why the angel is sent, is so that no one could claim ignorance. The truth is there, the future un- laid out. Now before we move on, look back for just a moment at verse 7, because again, this supports something. Uh, that we've been coming back to, but it's a great example of it. In in verse 7 we read, In the days, note that, the days, plural, of the sounding of the seventh trumpet. That's a very interesting uh, phrase. Again, a great example, really, of time, of how time functions in heaven, relating in non-linear, kind of three-dimensional ways on earth. Like, how long does it take to blow a trumpet? In heaven, it's probably a very simple thing. But we're told that in the days, or the plural, of the sounding of the trumpet. So what happens in heaven that seems like it would just take a moment actually carries forth and plays out on earth in days. So again, just an example of things happening in heaven, but the way that they relate to earth regarding time, it gets wonky. It's a little different. I mean, really, the question, how many days? Would it take for the, the events initiated by the sounding of the seventh trumpet to actually play out? We don't know. We're not told. But it's days. It's important. Verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said. So this is the voice of Jesus. The voice said, go and take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Again, we, we were introduced to this little book. It was open. It was in his hands. Don't know what it is, but it's a little book. So, John says, I went to the angel and I said, give me the little book. Now, we've, <laughs> we've read the description of the angel, right? Pretty awesome. Cloud, rainbow, fire feet, you know. <laughs> you got to give John some credit here. I mean, the guy's showing a little bit of brass, some moxie, you know. He, he's told, you know, by Jesus, go, go take the little book from the angel. And if I'm John, I'm like, that angel? You want me to what? And John's got, I mean, he, he is, he doesn't just, add, he says, give it to me, man. Bro, give me the book. Give it to me. <laughs> so he says to me, okay, bud, take it. And eat it. It'll make your stomach bitter, but it'll be sweet as honey in your mouth. And again, you got to give John some credit. He's just being obedient. He says, then I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, as the angels told him. But when I had eaten it, consumed it, my stomach became bitter. And then the angel said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. You know, as you seek to to kind of make sense of what's happening here. And you can read commentaries on your own and get a thousand different perspectives of it. You can get a a whole myriad of ideas about what the little book is, what's contained in it. Is it the rest of the book of Revelation? Is it like the cliff notes to Revelation? Is it something else entirely? I don't know. It's just a little book. And it's obviously not important to know what's in it because we're not told what's in it. Now, when when you try to process this, the first question I always ask is, do we have any examples of that ever happening before? You know, again, the, the best commentary or cipher of the New Testament is the Old Testament. So is there anything in the Old Testament that might give us some insight into the significance of eating this little book? And in fact, there is a great example of the eccentric prophet Ezekiel having almost the identical experience. Ezekiel is given not a little book, but a scroll to eat. And he's given the identical warning. It'll be sweet as honey, but it'll turn your stomach bitter. And as with John, Ezekiel was obedient and started tearing up the scroll and eating it. Bizarre. Now, regarding the little book and the possession of the angel, again, we're not told what's in it. But I do think contextually we can conclude that it does have something to do with the remaining portion 
of this revelation that John's receiving. And what's being illustrated by this is kind of a bigger illustration of the Bible in general. Like what John was about to record. And what the Bible articulates. You might just say that it is some degree a bittersweet symphony. Yes, I appreciate that, Chad. Thank you. Yes, the end of the story would be glorious, right? Kind of an urban hymn. That's the album, the bittersweet. Never mind. Like in the end of, of the story, I mean, Jesus comes back, right? And that's awesome. That's honey to the lips. That's significant. That's glorious. That's wonderful. But to get to that point, what makes it bitter, difficult, is that the earth would have to first extend down into the depths of hell for that glorious moment to happen. I mean, again, Jesus comes back, but what does the planet look like? Well, Jesus says that if he delayed his coming any longer, nothing else would be alive. That's how bad things, things get. Well, verse 1 of 11, chapter 11 John says, then I was given a reed, like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside of the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And we're told, I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, as you transition from chapter 10 to 11, John, he does something interesting. And, and again, you need to keep in mind, there's this tension in the book of Revelation. You know, you get to the sixth seal judgment. So you get, you know, one through five, you get to the sixth, you're done with that, and it's like, all right, let's get to the seventh, but, but things build, things build, things build, and then things kind of take a step back and decompress a bit. Again, you're given this break between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. Uh, you get, with the opening of, of the seventh seal, these trumpets begin. You get, you know, the first six trumpets, and then, and then you get like, the seventh is coming. It's a big deal. And then we get a little bit of it kind of pulled back. And then we get this whoa, whoa, whoa with the seventh. It's going to be a big, and then it, it backs off. Like there's this give and take, this movement, an ebb and flow. And the break really uh, between the sixth and seventh trumpet is more significant than any of the others. So uh, John is utilizing the opportunity and the reprieve, the break, the moment, the pause to fill in some other important information. And this happens to be one of those. So he recounts his experience here with the, with the little book and the angel and whatnot and eating it and kind of illustrating like, hey, this, is, this will end gloriously, but it's, it's, it's going to be hard getting there. And, and now he's going to give us some more information. He'll do this with really the next two chapters. So we have a little bit more information. We'll be introduced to some of the players, some of the other characters, some of the things that are going on uh, within all of these judgments. Now he's saying, I was given this measuring rod. And I was given the instruction to measure three things. The three things were the temple of God, the altar within the temple, and those who worshipped at the temple, who worshipped there. Uh, additionally, John uh, says that the one thing that he was to avoid measuring was the court, which is outside of the temple, also known as the outer court. And the reason that he's not to measure it, again, according to our text, is that the outer court had been given to the Gentiles. Now historically, we know that the very first temple, you know, so God, His presence, dwelt in the midst of the people in a tent. It was the tabernacle. It was God's whole intention because it, it illustrated the fact that we were just pilgrims passing through. It was never really God's intention to have a permanent dwelling place because the earth is not His permanent home, no more than it is you and I. But David wanted to build a temple once they had settled into the land and he had built his palace and the city had kind of exploded with growth. And so they wanted to transition the temple from being in Shiloh, the tabernacle, to being a temple, a physical building. David had blood on his hands, so he wasn't allowed to do it. 
but his son Solomon was. Solomon constructed the very first temple. So they took all the patterns, the blueprints uh, of the tabernacle, and they just made it a physical dwelling. Now that temple, the first temple, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and you can read the descriptions of it, it was quite, quite a place. It gets destroyed, we know, by King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. The second temple, so the first temple built by Solomon is flattened by the Babylonians. The second temple rises really from the ashes of the first by a man named Zerubbabel. It's kind of the, the construction foreman, uh, granted permission by the Persian king Cyrus. So he gets permission from the Persians to go rebuild the temple, Zerubbabel, out of the ashes of the original. Zerubbabel's temple, the second one. Now the second temple was was really, I mean, in fact, when they finished it and the exiles came back to the land, they wept. Like anyone that could remember the glory of the earlier temple wept at what they saw. Not that Zerubbabel was a bad construction guy, but they just didn't lack the resources or the funding. I mean, what they built was stripped down, bare bones, uh, a shadow of its former glory. So the, the people weep, wept over it. Now, fast forward. You're King Herod, Herod the Great, and you're wanting to earn some goodwill with the people um, you know, under your dominion, under your control. And so Herod decided to embark on kind of a revitalization um, of Zerubbabel's temple. So what we know is Herod's temple, the temple that Jesus would have ministered in and would have been in the first century during his time period, it has the, the guts, the bare bones of Zerubbabel's construction, but it's been glammed up. By Herod the Great. It took 40 years to do, was quite an accomplishment. They said the amount of gold overlay. You could see the temple from 10 miles away. I mean, it just glistened in the sky. Again, people from all over the world would come to see Herod's temple. He was quite a, a builder in his own right. Sadly, Herod's temple ends up being destroyed by Titus Vespasian. That happens, the Romans, 70 AD. Since the destruction of Zerubbabel's temple rebuilt by Herod, there hasn't been a temple. The temple mount, what we would call, has been vacant. In Ezekiel 40 through 43, like John, the prophet is given almost an identical instruction of John to measure what is a future temple. We say it's a future temple because there's not a temple. Hadn't been one since 70 A.D. So Ezekiel is told by the Lord to go measure this future temple. And we know from just the context that this future temple, what you might even think of as being the millennial temple, is the one that will be used by Jesus and the kingdom. We, we, we know this because the outer courts are included in the measurements. This temple measured by John is different than the one that Ezekiel sees because, again, Outer court was to be ignored. Outer court's to be included. So this temple seems to be the one that John is measuring here. Seems to be, again, still future. But is the temple between uh, no temple and the final temple? You following me? So this is the temple that will be constructed uh, probably during the earlier part of the Great Tribulation. It'll be the temple that will be desecrated by the Antichrist in an act that was, uh, that's known scripturally as the abomination of desolation. It's an abominable act that causes desolation of this temple, which is why there's probably another one that Ezekiel measures. You know, many scholars, what's fascinating about the first couple verses of chapter 11 is that this detail that John should avoid measuring the outer court. You know, today, th there's really two major hurdles to rebuilding the temple. One is there's not a will to do it. Most, most Jews are secular people. Uh, they're not religious. Um, most of them are atheistic, just following off of what took place with the Holocaust. A lot of their belief in God uh, was, uh, was let go of um, out of just this reaction to just a, a horrible thing that they went through, the experience. So most Jews today are not religious, have no interest. There's no popular opinion, groundswell interest in building a temple. If there was, there's still a major problem. The site that is believed to be the location of Zerubbabel's temple in Herod, um, they, the Muslims put what's known as the Dome of the Rock on that spot. And so 
in order to put a Jewish temple back on the Temple Mount where, where it originally was, you would have to somehow get rid of the Dome of the Rock, which you would like to start World War III, you can go for it. The theory, what's interesting, is that more recent research has come out to indicate that Solomon's temple, the original, might have actually been just north of where Zerubbabel Herod's, because Herod built this massive complex. Meaning, if you look at the Temple Mount, there is a vacant piece of property right next to the Dome of the Rock. And that may be, again, just speculating, as part of a peace agreement, a, a, a deal reached with Israel, that there is a rebuilding of a temple on the original spot, leaving the Dome of the Rock in its place, possessing the outer courtyard, because that's where it would be located. Meaning that John would be given this instruction, measure the temple, but leave the outer courtyard. Don't measure it. Why? Because it's been given to the Gentiles. Again, what's interesting about the detail is it kind of maybe sets the stage for how some of these things uh, could, all, could all fit together. Um, if you don't think that there are Jews ready to build a temple, uh, Google the Temple Institute. I've been there. It's in Jerusalem. There is like, the, a minority of very Orthodox Jews have everything ready. They could break ground tomorrow and rebuild a temple, uh, it's, it's quite astonishing. Now, well, the existence of a third temple is interesting, fascinating. Very little application for you and I. The emphasis of the chapter does pivot very fast in verse 3. Again, John, uh, Jesus tells John, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy, we're told, 1,360 days. They're, they'll be clothed in sackcloth. Now, I want to take some time and unpack what we can deduce, conclude, uh, about these two witnesses from the text. So what does the text tell us? And we're not speculating. This is just what the, what the, what the Bible tells us. First, the Bible's clear that during the Great Tribulation, aside from these 144,000 Jewish evangelists positioned across the globe, Jesus will have... Two witnesses, two, two witnesses, not three, because the Bible didn't tell us that. Two, not one, two. In the Greek, two is two. Two witnesses or representatives, and we're also told that their ministry will be specifically localized in one city, the holy city, which we can conclude to be Jerusalem. In fact, that, that fact will be reinforced in verse 8, when John will describe the great city as being spiritually called Sodom, which, which means that the city's overrun during this period with immorality. And then he'll call it it's spiritually Egypt, meaning it's filled with idolatry. And then if you're like, well, how does that tell us it's Jerusalem? We'll then be told where also our Lord was crucified. And there's only one city that fits that particular description. So Jesus will have two witnesses, representatives. Their ministry will be in Jerusalem. We know that. Secondly, in addition to openly and publicly testifying of Jesus, how do we know that <laughs> they're his witnesses? We're also told that they will prophesy. This is an interesting word. The word prophesy related to the idea of prophecy in its Old Testament context. It gives us the indication that their ministry, their role, their function, is that they're going to act as God's megaphone to mankind. And that was the role of a prophet. A priest represented man before God. A prophet's role was to represent God to man. The prophets of old spoke for God. What the prophets wrote, what the prophets proclaimed, was God's proclamations. They were these big megaphones in the midst of society telling people what God was saying. The voice of these two witnesses make it abundantly clear that there will be a testimony in the midst of tribulation as to what's really happening on earth. All the cataclysmic events, if you might have thought there was some rational explanation or some, some you know, this man-made causation, these two witnesses were there to make it clear, this is the wrath of God, this is the judgment of God, this is happening because you've rebelled against God. So they're there to testify, to prophesy. Thirdly, because these two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth, which is not something you can just like pick up at Gap, but they're clothed in sackcloth, which is interesting attire because, again, it has a lot of biblical imagery. 
it's safe to reason that the substance of their message, in addition to identifying, speaking for God, making sure that the world knows what's happening and why it's happening, the substance of their message is one of repentance. It's what the sackcloth always indicated. A good example or illustration of this potentially might be found in John the Baptist. Again, John's message was one of repentance, and he was also clothed in similar attire, sackcloth. Beyond telling these people what's happening in the world, these two witnesses will be bringing a message of salvation. Salvation from sin offered by Jesus. Yes, they will say why these things are happening, but they'll say, but you can give your life to Jesus. There'll be a redemptive message to these witnesses. Fourth, their prophetic ministry, again, what the text tells us, will last, not indefinitely, but specifically, a specific time period of 1,260 days. Or, using the Babylonian calendar, the 360 day, um, is three and a half years. So these two witnesses will minister for three and a half years. And again, we'll get to this more later in our travels but 1,260 days, three and a half years. If, if you're already familiar, like, wait a second, I've, I've, I've heard these numbers before. They're all over Daniel. Jesus mentions them. They're always equated. It's how we get the seven-year uh, tribulational period. Daniel's 70th week, seven years, three and a half years is this middle mark, 1,260 days. It's exactly half of the seven-year period of, of tribulation. And I think we can also conclude that their ministry is specific to probably the first half. Uh, We know that because their ministry doesn't end with the second coming of Jesus, but with a clash with the Antichrist. It would seem that these witnesses, they're commissioned by Jesus, they're given a message, they're given a role, a time, but it's only to last for this time period. Again, it would appear the angel's declaration, Revelation 10, verse 6, that there should be delay no longer, And then the ministry and the tragic deaths of these two witnesses are intertwined. We'll get to that in a minute. Fifth, in order to validate their witness and their message, we're told that Jesus, in what we just read, gives to them what? Supernatural, quote, power. See this, power. They're given power. In the actual original language, uh, there's a pronoun attached to the word power. It's my power. It's not a power, some power, your power, infuse your power, trumped up your, no, it's, I will give them my power. So they have a divine power. And now in the next few verses, John will illustrate how this power manifests. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. You know, if if you, as you're developing your relationship with the Lord and and trying to explore the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, I don't think that these powerful gifts are available to you. I pray for them frequently. I think it would be awesome, especially when I do have an enemy or someone slandering me, to be able to be like, Lord Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, may fire come from my mouth and devour them. That would be sweet. I don't think that these are exactly uh, open to all, but specific to these two. (laughs) They're given God-given power. They can perform signs and wonders. And again, they're akin, really, these examples to some of the, the Old Testament stories, right? They could call down plagues, stop the rain, fire coming out, and they could do this as often as they desire. You know, like Elijah, they can rain down fire from heaven or, or hold back the rain and, and influence famine like Moses. They can turn water into blood. They can strike the earth with all kinds of plagues. You know, while up until this point in the book, we've seen each of these divine judgments initiated through an act in the heavenly space? Could it be that some of the plagues of, let's say, the trumpet judgments might actually coincide with the activities of these two witnesses on earth? Maybe. I can't say for certainty. 
but it is likely. I should should also add that over the course of their three-and-a-half-year ministry, uh, these two witnesses don't make a lot of friends. In fact, the text is kind of clear that they develop some very real opposition. John says if anyone wants to harm them, implying that there are people who want to cause them harm, fire proceeds from their mouths and devours their enemies. Again, implying that these men were facing very real enemies, seeking them harm. It's interesting what John says of the two witnesses in verse 4. He writes, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. It's likely the reference here of of the olive trees indicates that like the 144,000, these two individuals are also Jewish. Uh, Furthermore, kind of consistent with what we've already discussed regarding just the imagery alone, the reference of them being lampstands implies that they, they are uniquely positioned on the earth to be God's light into the darkness. The idea of them being lampstands and olive trees uh, it implies that they have a continual source of fuel. Olive fueling uh, the branches of the lampstand. In- interesting imagery. Verse 7. We're told that when they finished their testimony, so at the conclusion of these three and a half years, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, this is a new character, will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. Again, we've read this, but spiritually it's Sodom and Egypt where our Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, so all of the earth, will see their dead bodies three and a half days. And they will not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. They will make merry. They will send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And again, what John is describing, this global awareness of of, of what happened in Jerusalem and being able to see it. I mean, this is only possible, made possible in modern times through the internet, through live streaming, live cams, cable, television. Again, the idea that the whole world would see this, watch this, witness this, and have a party over it uh, could only really happen in our day. Now, recording the scene... John begins this section by saying, again, the context, that when they had finished their testimony, again, the Lord had given them their ministry. The ministry was to last 1,260 days. He gave these two witnesses power to fend off the enemies, those that would seek them harm, any assassination attempts. That said, now that their ministry had run its course, it had concluded, it had finished, John witnesses this beast rise up and kill these two men. Their time is over. Now, I think it's also safe to say that these two witnesses are are men. And the reason for that is that all of the Greek pronouns used in the text are presented in the masculine. Again, I would not be overly dogmatic on it, but I just, food for thought. Now, while this happens to be the very first mention of the beast in the book of Revelation. Over the next several chapters, he is going to become a central figure. This beast is known in the Bible by other names. He's referred to as the son of perdition, the man of lawlessness. Daniel calls him the little horn. You might just call him the Antichrist. That's what he's referred to in other places. This powerful man who I believe we originally saw ride to world power, ride upon the world stage uh, with the loosing of the first of the seal judgments, Revelation 6. This man is finally able, he's given the authority, to rid the world of the scourge of these two witnesses who have tormented the earth. He's caused all all these problems. No one can touch them. They have the ability to defend themselves. But this Antichrist, the beast, is able to do something finally about the situation. That's what John is describing for us. He says that in the streets of Jerusalem, the Antichrist, and again, very interesting terminology, we're told that he will make war against them. He will overcome them and kill them. So so there's a battle royale 
Like this is like mortal combat in the streets of Jerusalem. But one in which the Antichrist wins. Again, all of the language, it's descriptive. It paints the picture of a violent, dramatic confrontation. Televised for the world to see. And while no one has been able to lay a hand on these two witnesses, there's this sensational moment in time when the Antichrist kills both of them himself. Not only are their dead bodies desecrated by being allowed to, to, to rot in the streets of Jerusalem. You get to three and a half days, they stinketh, as the old King James would say. But the world community, I mean, they redefine Mardi Gras. I mean, there's a celebration. It's the day of the dead, the day of the, the death of these two jokers. They celebrate. They rejoice. Again, this is the only time in the entire book you find the word rejoice. It's, it's an odd reaction. They rejoice. They make merry. They party. Christmas comes early. They give gifts to one another. Like there is a deep, a deep sense of relief that these men are dead. The world exhales. And in turn, the Antichrist's popularity, I mean, soars. He does what no one could do. Verse 11, buckle up. Now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on all those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. And in the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Like, you want to talk about the party coming to a screeching halt? I mean, imagine the scene, right? You're watching on CNN. After lying in the streets for three and a half days, Anderson Cooper, because he'll be in the tribulation. I shouldn't have said that. I hope he's not. I hope he gives his life to Jesus and isn't. But let's just say he is for him or, or Don Lemon, Lemon. Either way, they're there, breaking news, breaking reports. We're seeing the bodies move. The bodies begin to stir. And they get up. Well, that's abnormal. You don't see that every day. And then we're told that they hear a voice. No one else hears the voice. They hear a voice, so they kind of look up. They look at each other, look up. And then they ascend to heaven. Like, I mean, this is a like, crazy moment in human history. <laughs> Everyone sees it. The whole world sees this. They're shocked. People are freaking out. These men are resurrected and then ascend to heaven. Like one moment, they're dead. The next moment, they're alive. And now they're gone. Soon after, John actually says that in, in, in the same hour. So John doesn't know exactly the like 34 minutes. No, it's just roughly. It's the same hour. People, again, they're in Jerusalem. They got the crime tape out. You know, you know, CSI, they're on the scene trying to figure out what's going on, where they go, that there's an earthquake. Jerusalem gets hit. A tenth of the city, which is very specific, interestingly enough, a tenth of the city is destroyed, completely destroyed. And in that, 7,000 people die. And then John adds that those who didn't perish, the rest, or literally the remnant, were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Don't take that that they're worshiping. It means that they're acknowledging that God just did something again. Verse 14, which will be our final verse. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. I mean, you want to talk about like kind of an ominous place to leave a Bible study. The second woe is past. The third woe coming quickly before we before we continue before we wrap things up well i completely reject any claim that would that would say or present these two witnesses 
as being anything other than two literal men. Because the text doesn't give you any indication to try to allegorize or paint these, these two as being uh, illustrative of something other than what they are, two witnesses. I do want to acknowledge the reality that copious amounts of time and energy and debate are spent trying to identify who these two witnesses are. If you find yourself interested in such matters, based upon, again, the description provided by the Apostle John, I will let you know that the general consensus of scholars identifies these two men as Elijah and Moses. That Elijah and Moses come back as these two witnesses. Again, just based upon the descriptions, which are very similar. Elijah performed the fire thing and the keeping back the rain, and Moses, the blood to water thing, was always his back pocket trick, and he was good at plagues, like the ten plagues of Egypt. So that's how people kind of reach the conclusion that, you know, Elijah and Moses, solely by the description here. That's all the evidence that, that, that's there. Beyond that, again, if you're interested, aside from Elijah and Moses, I do think a solid case can be made for at least one of the two being maybe the obscure Old Testament character known as Enoch. If you want to go further down the rabbit hole, you can find a decent argument that the two witnesses are Zerubbabel and the high priest at the time, a man named Joshua. If you're interested in studying that, Zechariah chapter 4 is the only mention in the Old Testament of two olive trees, olive branches, and the two lampstands. So there might be some connection. I don't know. You can study it. The more I've studied the topic, and I love this debate. I had all kinds of theories until I got into this Bible study. Like I am, I am not convinced that it's any of these men. In fact, the more likely scenario is that these two witnesses are not Old Testament saints sent back to earth at all. And instead, I actually believe now, and it's, it's my position, that these are unnamed men who are raised up by Jesus following the rapture and commissioned to fill this specific role in God's plan for the ages to last 1,260 days, and they're given unique power. And here's why I believe this. You know, unlike the seven thunders, John isn't omitting the identities of these men because he's been instructed to keep them a secret. Instead, it's only logical that John doesn't provide their identities because he doesn't know their identities. Like, in fact, the one thing we can say for sure is the identities of these two witnesses don't seem to be important at all. Why? Because if they were, Jesus would have revealed them to John, who would have in turn articulated them to us. Again, the, the, the consensus is that these witnesses are, are Moses and Elijah. You know, if it's Moses and Elijah, I think of all of the characters, those are the two that John would have absolutely, positively identified for us. Why? Because he already knew what they looked like. Mount of Transfiguration. There's only three people that see Jesus transfigured and joined by who? Well, we're told, John actually tells us, it's Moses and Elijah. Now, how he knew that they were Moses and Elijah then, I don't know. I don't, they had heavenly name tags. We're going to need those in heaven to figure out who people are. But John sees Moses and Elijah, meaning that if these two witnesses he's watching are Moses and Elijah, he'd be like, oh yeah, I know those guys. I've seen them before. Just logic. Like furthermore, if the two witnesses are, let's say, some other Old Testament characters, like Enoch or Zerubbabel, like, why keep that a secret? Like, for example, if, if, if these two men are, are, again, let's say Moses representing the law or Elijah representing the prophets, the two witnesses, then wouldn't that have been such a significant detail regarding, like, the overarching storyline of the Bible that John would have mentioned it? 
I mean, why keep that a secret? Yeah, the law and the prophets were the witnesses in this time period. Or Enoch, who walked with God, was not. He came back. That's kind of a big story. Why bury the lead? Unless it's not the lead. What about the prophecy, people might reason, in Malachi? Prophecy in Malachi that says that Elijah would return before the Messiah. It's it's one of the reasons that people are definitive about Elijah being one of the two. But even then, the simple fact is that the argument can be made, that prophecy in Malachi in reference to Elijah spoke about someone coming before Jesus in the spirit of Elijah. And that it wasn't actually going to be Elijah himself. And how do we know it? That's the identical argument that's made for John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist is like, no, I'm not Elijah, but I came and fulfilled this and the spirit of Elijah. So why can't someone else come before the second coming of Jesus and fulfill it in the spirit of Elijah? Why does it have to be Elijah? Again, I don't know. Some people might say, and this is the other argument, well, what about the notion that it's appointed for everyone to die once? And let me explain how that ties into this. Like People will argue that since Elijah was taken to heaven in a fiery chariot, again, I'm going to say it's a pretty cool way to go to heaven, and that Enoch walked with God and was taken, that it's necessary for these two men to come back to earth and die a physical death. The Bible says it's appointed for all men to die once, and then the judgment. They'll apply the same logic to Moses because we don't exactly know what happened to Moses' body. We're told that Michael, the archangel, wrestled over the body of Moses with, with, with Lucifer. I don't know why. They must have liked him. The, the, the problem is, is that there's some challenges. Like, the it's appointed for all men to die once argument. Roll with me for a moment. If, if that's the reason these people need to come back so that they actually die, okay? Because everyone's got to die once. Um, what exactly happens in the rapture? Because we're told that the rapture is the dead in Christ arise first, And then those who are alive and remain are caught up to be with him in the air. So like to be consistent, because it's appointed for everyone to die once, is the rapture then, the rapture of the church, Jesus killing the bride in order to take her home? No. Like to be real, like there's no debating the reality that Moses died which is problematic for him being one of the two witnesses. But regarding Elijah, again, just working this through, how exactly do you physically survive a fiery chariot ride? Seems that might be difficult. And yes, Hebrews 11 does confirm that Enoch did not see death, and Jude says that he was an end times prophet. If he or Elijah needed to return to earth in order to die then explain to me what their present condition is in heaven since they haven't received a glorified body yet. Again, I just see way more problems equating these two witnesses to some Old Testament chaps. Again, there's nothing wrong with theories, but you should concede that there's nothing about our text that demands we raise two Old Testament heroes from the dead to make the story make more sense. Like instead, kind of just a cursory reading says that during the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, Jesus will commission and empower two Jewish men alive on the earth to be his witnesses in the city of Jerusalem. The entire world hates their guts. They tell people they need to repent. They're untouchable for the duration of their ministry. After 1,260 days, the Antichrist kicks them in the throat and kills them. The world throws a party. Three days later, they rise from the dead. They're resurrected by God. They ascend to glory. That's the story. Like at this point, the seventh trumpet will blast. We'll see that. And we get to the second half of Great Tribulation. Like why do we need this to be Moses and Elijah or Enoch or Zerubbabel to make sense? In closing, and I know I'm over, what I do find interesting about the story arc of these two witnesses is that why does the world absolutely hate their guts? We're told because they tormented those who dwell on the earth. And I guess it is safe to assume that people didn't appreciate the plagues. I wouldn't. And that they probably didn't like them because of all the judgments brought forth. 
I mean, your Yeti water bottle, you were not happy when it turned to blood? Bummed you out? My guess, though, is that the torment that causes such a visceral reaction runs much deeper than plagues or judgment. You see, in the end, the world hated these two men for two things. Their witness and their message. Like, never overlook the fact that these men are called. Like, what are they called? They're called the two witnesses. You see, the world itself, the, the word, witness, it, it isn't active. It's, it's, it refers to a previous activity. It's with wit, I'm a witness. You see, a person becomes a witness of Jesus Christ for only one, one reason. You have an encounter with Jesus Christ, you witness something that changes you forever. Like you're either a witness or you're not a witness. And it was when it's all said and done, these two men were deeply despised because they represented Jesus and the world deeply hated him. Aside from this, it was the message of these men that prohibited a wicked world from operating with a clean conscience. Yeah, as we saw at the end of chapter 9, in spite of all the supernatural warnings around them, humanity refused to repent, choosing instead to harden in their rebellion against God. And I bring this up because the way the world treated these two men is the way that the world will treat us. They will hate us for two reasons, our witness and our message. Always know a sinful man, a sinful friend, who is resisting the truth of his sin will always hate and persecute the person willing enough to speak truth. So Father, we thank you for your word and what it says to us. In Jesus' name.